I always love saying this. We can edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it never gets edited. <laughs> Hey everybody, Saturday night, Microphones of Madness. It is 11-26-2016. We are looking at the second half of Children of Glaaki. Or as Steve likes to say, Glaaki. Alright, so we'll jump right into it, go uh, story by story, and then give just overall impressions. Sure. The first one is Invaders of Glaaki by our old friend and twisted gamester, Oren Gray. Now... Except for that fucking last level, I'd like to play this game. <laughs> but that last level, a bitch. Yeah, you know, how good were you at that games like Pac-Man or Space Invaders? Or Defender. This kind of reminded me of Defender. Yeah, like the original arcade Defender or yeah. Gal- um, Galaxon or something like that. No, Galaxon was a Gallagher ripoff. Yeah, well, Galaxon was like part two. You know, Galaxian was the first one and Galaga was part two. Nah. That series. But Defender was yeah. the one where you got the spaceship and you can go left or right and you had to uh, fight uh, other spaceships, maybe, and rescue people. This one seems more like the... Um, well, without the rescuing people part. Right. Oh, shit. I just forgot what it was called. R-Type. Oh, see, that's later than I think the time frame of the story was. I don't remember. I forgot what the the other games he referenced as it was being like. Um, but they it, were it replaced the Street Fighter Two machine, so it's oh, definitely that's like that's later on. Yeah, that's like a '90s era arcade game. So basically, you have this arcade game mm-hmm. called Invaders of the Plaaki, where you go through different levels and you are playing the Glaki story. Basically, the overarching Glacky story as a video game. And if your mother ever told you while you were playing video games, those things are get inside your head, make you crazy, or something like that. She wasn't wrong. That's true. So the thing I, I enjoyed about this was uh, it was told in the third person referencing you, the reader. So you 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 were the uh, he keeps on referring to well the first line is you remember the game don't you when it first showed up at the quick stop up the road past the supper club in the big empty parking lot up the top of the hill <laughs> and throughout the whole story you keep on getting this you and the, the story is a flashback basically to the situation that leads up to why the narrator and you are having this conversation in the first place. And it's effective because it, it, it puts you, the reader, into the story. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, everything that happens in the story more or less happens to you, the reader. You know, I thought it kind of had this this Tales from the Dark Side kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it did. It, it, it kind of ended like one of those old anthology shows. Not quite, you know, the Twilight Zone or classic Twilight Zone, but maybe some more somewhere along the lines of Tales from the Dark Side or the newer Twilight Zone or something or, like that. Uh, was it amazing Stories. Yeah. Amazing Stories. Like a, like a Spielbergish 80s kind of uh, horror anthology show. Like Amazing Stories. Right. Now, the other thing is, is because it's Orin Gray, I have this sneaking suspicion 
that really Invaders of Clacky is a reworking of the old, uh, I don't remember if it's an urban legend or a creepypasta, but the uh, Polybius story. And it, that's that's what I was thinking of throughout the entire story was, you know, this is this is what Polybius is. And that probably gave away too much of it as well. I was thinking it was kind of a subverted last Starfighter kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Could have been something like that. But, you know, your mind runs to last Starfighter. Mine runs to uh, Polybius. Yeah, so the second, uh, second story is Tom Lynch, Scions of Chalk. Again, there's no pronunciation guide here, so we're just kind of. Making it up up as we go along. There's no, there's two A's and no apostrophe. So, chalk. This is a story about a school mark. No, it's not. (laughs) Because of the chalk. Not the chalk. That's what teachers write on the chalkboard. In Boston, Boston we do. We use chalk. Chalk. Write in the chalk on the chalkboard and then go and uh, park the car at the cub. Yeah, this takes place in the in the Yucatan. Um, it's it's it is the story of a couple of I want to say archaeology researchers mm-hmm. fresh out of grad school who uh, discover a sinkhole filled with water. I forget what they're called. A cenote. A cenote. And inside the cenote, there are mysterious things we find. I mean, it's a glacky story, so we basically get glacky as an adapted part of uh, Mayan pantheon. But this one this one has more of a vibe of just your, a straight-up monster story. You know, there's not you know, the elements of mind control and cult. Well, there is a cult, but not the, you know, almost supernatural or really alien-alien aspect to it. It's just a, a monster. Right. Now, the thing I really liked about this story is – most of the story was spent building your suspense mm-hmm. and playing a little bit with, well, it's glacky, so you know what's down there. I, I mean, you go into stories, any of these anthologies and you kind of, you have a suspicion of what's going to happen. Well, right. You get, you get a little bit of a of an issue of stories being self-aware. Mm-hmm. And that could work to your advantage, um, where if you take the story outside of this uh, anthology and publish it on its own, it still works. There's not the wink and the nod that you get in a lot of these where you have, oh, it really is risen, so you know it's going to happen. But in this, it, it's a slow buildup, almost. Um, well, it is literally, it's an investigation. There's no clear purpose other than yeah. discovery. Yeah, and Lynch goes through great lengths to distract you with the scenery. Yes. You know, and if you've watched any like nature programs or stuff like that, where they go diving into these, these uh, cenotes, you know, you know kind of what to expect. And then he adds to the kind of lost world aspect to it. And you're kind of along for the ride for this phenomenal discovery and then monster. And it works. It works out well. I mean, you know, it, it's paced pretty well. I mean, and he, like I said, he lures you in, kind of entrances you with the uh, with the scenery. And he kind of leads you along a path where you know how it's going to end up, but you don't really, it, you're not caring because it's so well written. You, you don't get to the point where, oh, I know that. that well, I called that three pages ago um, because it doesn't matter. 
Right. And, and, and you're left and you're left satisfying. And it's it stands out because because it is an interesting take. And it's not it doesn't really seem quite as supernatural as some of the other stories. Once again, without being able to spoil it, just have to read it for yourself. Yeah, I know you want to spoil the, it so bad. Well, to be the judge of whether it's a supernatural, yeah, thing you have to or give away a big fucking monster that people have mistaken for something supernatural or whatever. Yeah. All right. The third one in the list is uh, Cult of Panacea by our good friend Constantine Paradis. The deep one. Yeah, definitely uh, a, a little bit of a twist. You don't see all the time. Also written from the perspective of Glacky's thralls rather than his victims. The actual children of Glacky. And, and, and yeah, and you get like an interesting look inside their world for change. Well, that and you get this one has a, a bit more of a philosophical bent to it mm-hmm. than the other stories did. Um, there's definitely some some horror aspects going on in the story, but you, you get um, litanies that the children of Galaki use, mm-hmm. formula, but you get this idea that um, Galaki is actually a, a force that is a ballywack against entropy. And if you think about it, it's true. I mean, what he, its goal ultimately is to become everything and to have everything be static, within him and from from the point of view of Galaki and its thralls, it is a ballywack against entropy. It almost almost presents Glacky as kind of a heroic type of character. One of the good guys. Well I wouldn't say heroic, but I would say not evil. Not malignant. <laughs> yeah. Another and this might be just because um, Constantine is a man from Greece. But the state of being part of Galaki kind of reminded me of the uh, Fields of Asphodel from Greek mm-hmm. mythology. They're one of their versions of the underworld, where if you you're not good, you're not bad, you're just a regular schmo who died. You are basically confined to an afterlife of constant nothing. There's no, nothing good going on, nothing bad going on. Probably really boring, but you're not being boiled in oil. Kind of like Dante's Limbo. Yeah, kind of like, like yeah, or the uh, Purgatory. I don't know. It's like it's been a long time. Purgatorio and Paradiso, or uh, well, Paradiso was like the super really boring one. Yeah, there none of none of the other two <laughs> of the three are not quite as good as Inferno. Well, Inferno was where everything exciting happened. Yeah, well, the sequels are never as good as <laughs> that's not true. Empire. Right, right. Come on, man. Come on now. Empire. The yeah, Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> Dark Knight Rises? Oh, is that whatever the second one was. Okay, that's just the Dark Knight. Okay. Dark Knight Rises was the... That, that was the... One with the leg brace. Oh, gosh. Then how did you escape? <laughs> so this is the empire of Galaki stories. I enjoyed this. Yeah. And he even like incorporated the the uh, rot that they go mm-hmm. through after a while into the whole in, inner Galaki mythos. Very nice, very well done. Stands out from the rest of the book because it is so different, right? In in tone, um, and in perspective. Well, and also it doesn't it doesn't have that 
and most of the stories here are retellings of the original inhabitant of the lake. Mm-hmm. And you have those those beats that they hit. You have the, the lakeside cottages. You have the lake. You have the, uh, some form of isolation, mm-hmm. the forest or whatever. And you have um, a victim and someone trying to help the victim. Variations of that. And this really has absolutely none of that. This yep. is more... More of a, uh, I won't say a field guide to Galaki, but but more of a, uh, well, maybe like a uh, a monograph on the the children. Like if an anthropologist somehow managed to get safe passage mm-hmm. to the culture of the uh, children of Galaki. It's just good. Yeah, it's a good story. All right, next on the list is Josh Reynolds' uh, Squatters' Rights. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you really, really enjoyed this story. I, I did really like this story. I, I like stories where the, the the good guys do win on occasion. <laughs> and I, I thought I thought that this one went over really well. It's, the, it's a, the second occult investigator story in the book. That's actually why I thought you would like it as opposed yeah. to. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wrote there in my notes. Yay! A second occult detective story. This one kind of, it kind of reminded me of Neil Gaiman's forays into Innsmouth. It, it was a bit tongue in cheek. It was a bit, uh, a bit over, over the top. Very it, English. All over the place. Must have some tea. But I think, I think it, uh, since we've been playing Paul Cthulhu on Monday Night Heroes, I think this story also really has a tone uh, consistent with that particular game set. Yes, it's, well, it's you don't have that feeling of overwhelming terror that you get in a lot of these stories. You get more of a feeling of it's a hurdle that we have to. Well, we got over. a job to do, and, right. and we're going to do it. And you got it. You can do it a way or b way, and we're going to do it this way. I thought it progressed well, and then the had the action sequence, right, which was pretty tense. And I really kind of liked the way it was resolved at the end. I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah, it was definitely was. It had that. It had a clever ending. So uh, mm-hmm. you, basically, what you have in this story is a a rich fob who has uh, mm-hmm. more money than brains. And, and has uh, a habit of uh, accumulating dangerous things. He, he ends up buying the row of, of Lakeside Cottages. He buys them all. And uh, the children didn't want them all bought. Right. <laughs> um, they wanted a victim. <laughs> and instead they got a landlord. <laughs> so uh, it, it, they're, they're, they're attacking this guy, a very Night of the Living Dead kind of situation. Mm-hmm. The hero of the story, Saint um, Cyprian, is that Cyprian, Cyprian? Uh, Cyprian, I believe. Cyprian is uh, the English, stalwart English occult investigator who's going to help him out. Oh, by... he's, just, he's not any occult investigator. He's the royal occultist. That's true. He is the, he is the John D. of 1920X. Yeah. He's uh, he's like Carnegie's heir, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they do mention that it was Carnegie's heir, Carnar- Carnacki. Thank you, Carnacki. Yeah, I, I like this one a lot. It's probably one of my favorites in the book. So the next one on the list is "Beneath Cayuga's Turning Waves" by 
Lee Clark Zumbe. Or Zump. Zump. Or Zumbe, maybe? Zump. There it is. Lee, if you're listening, please give us a pronunciation guide on how to say your last name because we really hate getting these names wrong. We suck. <laughs> I mean, we're really bad at it. Yet we hate doing it. Yet we continue to do it. That's correct. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is another another story revolving around a reality television program, right? More pop pop documentary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and we have a an investigative journalist. I wanted to just say reporter, but an investigative journalist who is following around this sensationalist, yeah, you know, Bigfoot <laughs> adventures type of television show who writes her own kind of weird America type stories, you know, in a more legitimate fashion. Well, and that's funny because I was re- I actually have a note in here about that mm-hmm. um, that. While she is kind of the voice of reason, she's still a true believer. She just researches a little bit more mm-hmm. as opposed to the the producers of the show who go on the internet, slog around a little, and then run with it. Right. And don't care about presenting any type of facts or anything. It's just like they right. have the they have the story they want to tell and then they tell the story. Right. But I never got I I never got the impression that she was like a Houdini figure who wanted to debunk them. No, she just wanted to get it right. She was more like a Ghostbuster. Yeah, I I don't necessarily. I mean, the she also has a ghost tour business yeah. in Arkham and right. and things like that. Um, I think this is for her. It's a genuine area of interest, and she looks at it from a more detached perspective. Well, I think she also, she's an academic. Yeah. She, she has a reputation in journalism mm-hmm. outside of this. And I think she wants to maintain that and not be thrown in with the quacks. And you could also call this an occult detective story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's just not the expert in the occult like St. Cyprian is. Right. Or Karnacki. You know, and I liked this one. It had, had a lot of procedural elements, you know, rather than basing, having to base everything on visions Right. And you know all these types of encounters. Well, she goes There's to the a library, right? She, she goes to the library. and she interviews people, and she goes places. You know, and there is a, you know, we get a clue. She follows up the clue. We get another, which leads to another clue, and on down the line. There's very procedural element to it, and yeah, and that really kind of kept you going through the story. In that, um, you know, it was like, oh, oh, you know, what now? What? She's unraveling this. Meanwhile, you've got the guy she's shadowing effectively, uh, just kind of like stomping through everywhere, going, ah, yeah, let's do this this way. That's going to be great, and, and stuff like that. Well, there's even a point where um, one of them asks, should we get exteriors of the military barracks um, to play up the military angle? And she asks, is there a military angle? And the producer just says, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if there isn't one, we can make it. Right. They, they want, they want, they have a narrative that they want to tell and damned if it fits with the facts or not. Correct. Correct. And uh, has a bunch of facts and she's trying to fit a narrative into those facts. Right. She's trying to create a narrative from the facts. Right. So, 
exactly. So it's it's kind of like a a, a an I fucking love science versus an actual scientist in methodology. And that plays out very well too in that in that conflict between what's going on with the television crew and what she's doing for her own story. I was really really satisfied with the way this one ended. That one, you know what it kind of reminded me of? Kind of reminded me a little bit of the ending of Black Tom. Which itself was very well done. Yeah. Next up, we have uh, Tim Tim Wagoner, The Nature of Water. This one I like because, again, it's it's got a different tone to it. It takes the Glacky story and just shifts the perspective slightly, and we get something that's more akin to a ghost story. So... My my big caveat on this mm-hmm. um, is the main character Mark Sutton yes. is a uh, recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And he is at the at the, the lake because um, he feels guilty about something that happened that he did at the lake when he was a kid, mm-hmm. and coming to make amends. Now, from experience, I will say. That in a 12-step program, such as AA, it's very important that you follow the steps in order, because there are steps. Now, uh, I believe that the um, making amends step is seven or eight. It's up there. Um, it is not one of the first steps, <laughs> as it, it it is implied. And that actually becomes um, a point later on in the story. Right. Where, uh, there you go. It's uh, step number six. There you go. So basically what you're supposed to do, admit you have a problem, which he's done. You have to uh, admit that there's a higher power or a power greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. And you have to submit to that higher power. Those are the first three steps. I can't do it. I have a problem. I can't do it. It can. Mm-hmm. And that becomes very important later on in the story from the perspective yeah. of someone who has knowledge of, of the 12 steps. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Because uh, it is the road to relapse and it will bite you in the ass. What's that? The 12 steps? Well, to do it to work the 12 steps haphazardly and out of order. You're not supposed to get sober and then go up to everybody you're wrong and say you're sorry because you're not prepared mentally or spiritually to deal with the consequences of that because mm-hmm. not everybody you say I'm sorry to is going to forgive you. Right. Some of them are going to call you a dick or a bastard or punch you in the face or whatever. And you have to be prepared for that. And without doing the rest of the steps that come before that, you're not in theory. Well, that's kind of what this story is all about. Exactly what this story is all about. Not doing it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Really not doing it correctly. So for all of you who are listening to this, who are in recovery, Mr. Wagoner has written a mythos story for you. About the dangers of doing things incorrectly. Yeah. Follow the instructions. That's right. Get a sponsor. Get a sponsor who's worked the steps. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Get a, I think get my, a one or two of my friends who are listening to this who think that's funny. 
get a get a sponsor who actually you know might take an interest in maybe going camping at the lake with you. Yeah, don't do instead that. of sending you out there by yourself. And that's the other thing is a lot a lot of these things you're not really supposed to do alone. You need AA is a support group mm-hmm. in its core, and if you're not utilizing it as a support group, then you're not utilizing it. It all comes down to he got what he deserved for being an idiot. And he got what he wanted. That's true. Everybody wins. Yeah, really, you know, this is probably the closest to a happier day (laughs) in this book. Wink, wink. That's right. How happy can it be? You'll have to buy the book and find out. That's right. All right, next up we have uh, Tim Curran and Night of the Hop Frog. Immediately, when I read the title... I had the um, cheesy 1950s blood drippy font on this night of the hop frog, <laughs> you know, and a, and a warbly uh, dun, 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 dun. Right. Hammer Take. Films presents. Oh, it's not even Hammer Films, man. This is one of those, like, you know, they. Oh, I see. You're, you're like with a. With a Peter Graves starring in Night of the Hot Frog. Yeah, with Peter Graves, you know, at, down at the local drive-in. And it does have that kind of vibe to it. It does. It's, it's, it's a movie script, basically. It's written very cleverly. It's, it's the transcript of a documentary. Mm-hmm. It is found footage. Yes. And it actually, um, it reminds me a lot of the original Blair Witch, which say what you want about that movie, but I lived through that movie, and I'm, you did as well. Um, the hype that went around that movie, and the fact that you might think that movie sucks or give you a headache or whatever, but there are a shit ton of found footage movies now mm-hmm. that wouldn't have existed if nobody went out and made Blair Witch. Right. And and what makes it even particular, particularly more interesting than than it just being found footage uh, done as a transcript, is that it also references those sensationalized paranormal reality shows, um, like every Halloween. I think one of them has a live broadcast. Yeah, well, it's like Ghost Hunters. Mm-hmm. Ghost Hunters. Or some places like that, and it's that type. It's the transcript of that particular episode. But they're constantly talking about the feeds being in uh, IR. Mm-hmm. So you can, I mean, when you read this, you can see the black and white footage mm-hmm. of, of a shaky handheld camera being whipped around. What's that noise? What? Right. I mean, right. Like trying to focus in on something that's not quite there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and, and these, well and these take place. These take place almost like asides in the in the story itself, because the story itself unfolds more through the dialogue between the characters, right? Than it does any type of like mm-hmm. narrative action. Is yeah, but then there's, but then I mean, there's some images that you get in the narrative that are mm-hmm. just striking, right? And they're they're placed there deliberately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like the I can't. I don't want to give away the ending, mm-hmm. but the ending, 
of all the endings in this in this anthology, this one was probably my favorite. Yeah, it it, had, it did have a great end, and the just build up and build I mean, up and build up. If, if it was written as just a regular story, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been all that great, right? And but, I. I I think this the transcript format and these kind of abbreviated uh, storytelling, you know, with the descriptions of being just key shots. Yeah, and but it's it's great because you get these very vague descriptions and blurbs, like you know, like maybe a ten second image on the screen. You can really see that in your mind's eye, and it's really intense and striking. Whereas if that had just happened in a regular narrative, it would have just been another the window, the window. The eye. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And that's and that's what makes this one like really stand out too. Um, it's just it's so striking. And man, when shit goes the shit in this story really quick. Oh man. <laughs> If, yeah, I mean, if, it just goes you, from da 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 and then all of a sudden, fuck, what just happened? I know. <laughs> yeah, really, really well done. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it, I think it uh, ex- examines the found footage trope. And really, I think found footage, regardless to what you think of, of these types of movies and how prolific they are, these days, I think this is a perfect type of um, framing device or you know, setting for Lovecrafting kind of stories set in modern times. It totally is because you can have that sense of somebody writing their death mm. or right. complete mayhem without having to to swallow that pill of, oh, come on. He was writing the eye, the eye, the window. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and it's kind of Call of Cthulhu, for example. You know, it starts with this guy goes in and he gets a letter. Then he starts reading us the letter. And it's, you're getting this account, you know, down the chain. And that's kind of like the way found footage is. The person who found the footage really has nothing to do with what's going on there. Right. You know, so you're just like this person pops in the tape or, you know, starts playing or, you know, hands you the transcript. So they've watched it, transcribed it, probably given it to someone else. And then you get your hands on it by the time you read it in the story. Right. So, you know, you, you've got this like separation and you really are just kind of, it, it isolates the reader in a way. Because you're, there's no like direct reference to the reader, like in a second person story where they're talking to you, and there's not that necessarily that omniscient narrative from there's a lot absolutely of stories. No omniscient narrative. No, you are watching this shit as it happens. That's happened sometime in the past. You're not even sure when. You know, roughly given the technology right. present. And. The and you're yeah, and you're just kind of forced to watch because 
that's that's what it is. This is what you're given. And you're given the complete incident beginning to end. Remember that story we read, Uncle Lovecraft? That was in, I want to say it was in Urban Temples. Oh, yeah, the the one that's, uh, that was like Candle Cove? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We, we were joking that we thought that Lehman should make that, mm-hmm. that pilot. Right. It reminds me a lot of that story. Oh, we done mm-hmm. better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like... But that was a standout in that anthology. That particular story was a standout in that anthology. We all thought that, that was really well done, very clever. Yeah, and and I think this one, and you know, occasionally you have writers come in, they add new things to the mythos, right? Whether it be a new monster, a new book, a new cult. Current story adds something else to it, in that. Now, because we have technology, we can add videos and transcripts of videos into the occult library. Right. Oh, yeah. Miskatonic University is going to have a multimedia section. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I kind of like that. You know, upon his shelf were the cursed tomes of the Necronomicon and a copy of the Lakeside tapes. Why (laughs) not? Exactly. I, and I think that's that's something, uh, you know, as writers are exploring within the modern world, that some of this shit's going to end up getting recorded as much surveillance is out there now. Oh, yeah. And the final tale in this anthology is Mirror Fishing by John Langan. You have said this is probably one of your favorite stories in the book. Yes. I mean, I I really liked how Langan borrowed from the original story in a very interesting way. Yeah, it was just enough to to uh, to frame it Mm -hmm. um, as a Galaki story, right? Um, But it was different enough. uh, What was like completely different? It really didn't. It really didn't have any of the uh, the tropes that are in a lot of these other stories. It did, but I think it uh, adapted them. Well, they were subverted, really. I mean, you had right. yes, you had children of Galaki, but they weren't the uh, the spike zombies. No, uh, well, even the even the spike thing, he changed that around a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was definitely um, you know what it was. It's kind of like the way. When we first started reading this, you had mentioned that Galaki is really, you know, a, a shortened down version of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of, of what you see in the story of Call of Cthulhu and mm-hmm. overarching Cthulhu mythos and brings it into the 60s. Right. Moder- really modernized it for the time. I mean, right. And shrunk down the influence. Yes. And instead of being this kind of like widespread worldwide thing, just very local. Right. And and I think Langan did that yet again. Mm-hmm. I think he took the Galaki and modernized it. Well, sort of. I mean, this takes place like in the 80s. Yeah. In the 80s, but... Maybe early 90s. Yeah, well, 
just because of the Shogun Warrior aspect, that was like the late seventies, early eighties. Okay, so maybe mid eighties. Yeah, but um, and, um, I, and I think he also takes the he manages to shrink down the scope of of uh, the effects of Galacti while expanding the really the cosmic scope of mm-hmm. Galacti. Oh yeah does both at the same time. It kind of narrows down the whole thing to a single room. Right. The effect is, is very narrowed. Um, but the potential of the effect is yeah, it's infinite. all over the place. Yeah, right. pretty much infinite. You know, I like that. I like how he took the quality of the lake, not the, the rustic setting and isolated woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all he did was he took the description of the lake and said, okay. And we get the idea of mirror fishing from... Right, using mirror as, instead of the lake. Right. But the description of this class matches the description of the lake itself. Right, and they were isolated. Mm-hmm. In the room. They were alone. They were alone in the room. And he had very different ideas of what he thought was going on as opposed to what actually happened. Yeah, that poor <laughs> kid. Yeah, don't think with your dick, guys. Yep, because <laughs> you'll smash every mirror in the house and every mirror you ever come to and try. Come and- on now, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I would have to say, as much as I, I loved the way the story was set up, it wasn't my favorite ending. It just didn't strike me as the right note to end the anthology on. Maybe I've talked a, a, a bit in several of these these reviews about ordering of the stories. Right. And though I, I liked this one where it was, I didn't like the way it ended as the, the end of the book. I could see why they would have put that tone as the ending of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have reversed the last two stories. Yeah. I, I um, if, if, if you were thinking of, I want the ending of I want the last thing somebody reads in this anthology to make them feel what the hell. Like they just read a you know a gripping what was it like nineteen stories? Mm-hmm. Something like that. A, a gripping nineteen stories about Galaki. And we want to end on a note that shows off what happened when people interact with Galaki, mm-hmm. yes, I, w- I would have switched the last two stories. But, I, see, I see why they put this one last, because in, in my opinion, it's the strongest of the stories as a whole. Yeah, and it also has a quiet ending, I guess. And, you know, so you, you start with the inhabitant of the lake having a very quiet beginning. Right. And you go all the way through, and then you get to this... This ending. I mean, mirror fishing as an entire story is a very quiet story. Mm-hmm. It's very subdued. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, not even the, the most fantastic parts of it are like just sanity shattering. It's more of the just the fantastic. It's almost beautiful in a way. Mm hmm. And so, so in that respect, yeah, I can see, I can see how that ending 
works as well. It just wasn't, you know, it just didn't click with me right away. Overall, I liked this book better than Return of the Old Ones. If you're if you're looking for, I really hate to keep using the word mythos, but mythos style storytelling uh, with your your monsters and your cults and just different takes on that. You know, going back to Return of the Old Ones and the variation on the theme. Yeah, pick up this one if you want to hide in a p- pillow fort for a week. <laughs> pick up Return of the Old Ones. <laughs> I think the survivability <laughs> for the reader is is higher in, in, in Children of Black. You know, that's that's just coming from me. And I said in the first episode that I'm kind of burned out on these on these types of stories at the moment anyway. We have and quite a lot of them. Right? Yeah, we have we have read quite a lot of them this season. But uh yeah, I'm I'm gonna give this one a thumbs up and, and a recommendation. Yeah. Um, you know, makes a good Christmas present. I don't know if it's going to be out by Christmas, but uh, Hanukkah goes until the second, so you might be able to make it as a late Hanukkah gift or a Valentine's gift for someone you love, <laughs> right? Give them Return of the Old Ones for someone you love. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and the only thing I would request is we get that uh, rock and weird. Anthology, yeah, yeah. That so. when when that happens, we get an arc for it. <laughs> yep. Now, Brian, I, and I know Brian listens to these. I think Glenn does too. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he, he he won't talk to us. Um, we're waiting on a phone call, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he just won't tell us how to pronounce his name. Um, no, yeah, yeah. At least tell us that we had to go to the Chaosium pronunciation key in Call of Cthulhu game to right. finally figure out it's Galact. Right, which is really just Nick telling us there is no pronunciation guide, guys. Check this one out, and Glenn, Brian, if you're listening. Get rock and weird. that rock and weird anthology going. Rock and weird. I mean, just start kicking it around in your head. Rock and roll and weird. Rock and weird. And you can call it rock and weird and say by the microphones madness guys in the introduction. <laughs> that wraps up our coverage of the children of Glacky. Monday is harvest. Time, time to harvest. harvest and speaking an ultimate chapter. Speaking of, of Glenn and we, Brian. Yeah, I think we should be on their payroll. <laughs> They co-wrote. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll be doing a time for harvest on Monday. Uh, Friday, Fungi may be back Friday. I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I haven't talked to James yet. Next Saturday will be our big season finale. Uh, we're going to uh, take off a good chunk of December, get ready for a bunch of exciting stuff coming up for the new year. Uh, but the season finale will be a look at the CWDC crossover. Four shows, one week, one story. You might even say that they're all friends. And that's super. That's pretty super. They're like a league or something devoted to justice. So, without any further ado, good night, Gracie. Gracie, later.